Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. Man, I appreciate it so much. Uh, Before we get started, I feel like the Lord gave me a couple of words for people. Um, So I think it's Fred in the back. The one other black guy here. Yeah, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. There's another, there's another couple here. Um, but I, I felt like the Lord said um, that you fought well, that you fought really, really well in these last seasons and that the banner over you is not just love, but it's, it's you, you did well, good and faithful servant. And I think what he's, what he's saying is that the tears that you had in the last season are now gonna water and, and, and be um, the source of prosperity for your, for your next season. Um, I believe that he said that you're gonna get clarity around some business stuff in the next few months here, um, that you're gonna walk in, in just a, a renewed sense of vision. But man, he is so proud of you. He's so proud of the way that you have fought and that you have come out victorious. So I wanted to give that to you. And then right here with the beard. I know we've met before, but I don't know, I don't know you all's name, but I feel like what God is saying is um, he is redeeming your story from disappointment, um, that any shade of disappointment in your story and in your past, that he is just peeling back and that he is peeling away and that he's going to begin to pour the oil of joy over your life and that what you're going to, what you're going to see is that you're going to fight from a position and in one hand it's going to be, going to be joy and the other hand is going to be love. Um, and that it's going to bring just a power and a freshness and a, and, a, and a vibrancy to you all's life. So, bless you guys with that. Well, good morning. As Joel said, I'm not going to dwell too much on, um, on, on me leaving. We can talk about that later on in March, but would love to just spend time with you guys in my last five or six weeks that I'll be here in town. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and jump into our uh, teaching today. But before we start, I want us to all make a proclamation together. Uh, if, if you could just kind of put your hand up, not to put up in the sky, but you can just kind of put your hand up. We're not going to do the Joel Osteen like, this is my Bible. <laughs> I don't know if he still does that. But um, just repeat after me. Today, today I, enroll I enroll myself. In family therapy. There we go. There we go. We are all in therapy this morning. Welcome. I am your completely unqualified counselor. And what I find about family is that, that there, there, there's uh, crazy families and there's oftentimes like funny families, but really funny families are just making up for, for the craziness that they have. Like I come from a funny family and you can always tell it comes out at Thanksgiving, it comes out at Christmas, it comes out in weddings. And let me tell you, weddings I already have a very complex relationship with, really the older that I get. So I've, I've been uh, in 11 weddings already. The next one is the 12. And you get pretty jaded at some point. Um, so now, like, there, there's really only one moment that has really maintained its magic. 
And it's that moment when the doors open wide, the music starts, and the bride starts walking down the aisle, and the hair is perfect, the makeup is perfect, the, the dress, everything, and she's stunning. And everyone has that gasp. And, and every time, that still gets me. From that point on, though, it is completely downhill. <laughs> It is completely downhill because they walk up, they're looking each other in the eyes. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm still single. And then you start like, always the groomsman, never the groom. And we have that brief, that brief moment just for a second. But then they start talking about commitment. And that's a whole different issue. And this deep anxiety kind of starts come because they're talking about for life, for death do us part. And I think that's beautiful. I have no context for that. I see people and they're like, we've been married for 66 years. I'm like, yo, when you got married, the U.S. only had 48 states. <laughs> like, I can't, I don't have a context for that amount of time. Y'all were putting your, your babies in, in, in beds with lead paint. Like you didn't even know it was bad back then. And that just sounds like a really long time. And then we get a brief break for the reception. And just a brief moment of, of, of peace and joy. And then of course, it's the send off. And I gotta see them go off. And I'm like, well, I guess that would be nice. <laughs> and they drive off, and you think it's over. No. Then the worst part is I got to get in my car, and I got to drive home all by myself. <laughs> all by my lonesome. All by my lonesome. And, and there was one time, there was one wedding uh, that did not follow this pattern. There was one wedding that was completely different, but I think it beautifully illustrates how crazy my family can be. And it was that exact wondrous moment that I just described. It was a, a distant cousin of mine's wedding. The bride busts through the doors. She looks the best that she's ever looked in her life. The hair is done. The makeup is done. The dress is done. Everything is perfect. And there's that gasp that I've talked about. And just a second after that gasp, one of my family members who will not be named this morning said loudly enough, not just so the person next to him can hear or the people on his row, but for the entire auditorium to hear. She walks in and he says, oh my gosh, nobody told me she looked like a scarecrow. And I was like, oh my gosh, if somebody said that, we would fight. And then I was also like, scarecrows aren't inside, scarecrows are outside. Like, what are you even, what are you even talking about? But the truth is, is that story illuminates a fact is that while family might be uh, funny at times, while family is oftentimes joyous, that family is, is often uh, the thing that hurts us most deeply. It could often be the thing um, that, that causes the most damage while also being the thing that forms us most deeply. It's a completely biblical idea that our family of origin 
uh, shapes us. In Numbers, in Deuteronomy, in Exodus, um, they, 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 there is a phrase, the sins of your fathers, and it says that it affects for generation and generation. Now, what that does not mean is now that your dad, your dad stole a car in the 70s and now God's gonna hold you accountable. But what it means is that the effects of sin, that sin has a deforming effect that affects the way that we see the world, the way that we see others. And that effect that maybe happened to your dad or happened to someone else can actually uh, impact your life as their child. So a little bit about my family story. Uh, we only know about five generations. The rest is, is lost because due to slavery. So there's me. There's my dad, Jerry, who's great. There's Elihu. Elihu's my grandfather. Um, his dad was Tom. And then there's Commodore. And now Commodore was, was the child of a slave, and he was the child of a slave, slave owner. So you can imagine um, the intensity of life that they were all subjected to. My dad is older. My grandpa was, 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 was raised in the 1920s, and, or I guess the, the late 1920s and the 30s. Um, and the issue, or sorry, the 1930s, and the issue is that their life was all about survival. There was no aspect of joy. I spoke to my dad uh, earlier this week, and he said, my dad never played with us. He never dribbled a basketball, didn't do anything like that. The one thing that he was happy about, the one thing that he was, joy, that was joyous about was when people would ask him in his barber shop in, in downtown Houston, or I guess in the Fifth Ward of Houston, how many sons do you have? And he said, I have six. And they'd say, how many are in jail? And he'd say, none of them. He's like, that's the moment. That, that was the most proud I have ever seen my dad when none of his kids were in jail told me another story where he said, I had to take my dad to the hospital. I thought he was, he was dying. And he hugged my, mo my mother, who would be my grandmother. Um, and that's how I knew that it was, that it was serious because I never saw him hug my, my mother before. And I said, well, when was that? He said, oh, I had to be in my 40s before I ever saw my, my, my dad hug my mother. So, so the, the, the lifestyle that, that, we, that we brought up with, the sins that had happened upon um, Commodore and upon Tom and upon my grandfather because of slavery and desegregation and, and all of those things uh, affected the way that we actually live and actually affected our relationships quite deeply. Now, science is starting to catch up with what the Bible says Dr. John Balby um, began to write about what we would call attachment styles. And it's essentially, it's the study of how we connect with others and the strategies that we use to establish relationship, to establish connection. Essentially, uh, if we think of people as completely made for connection, right? In the beginning, God created, and, and he said, let us create. So even God himself lived um, in relationship. He, he, that word us, it points to the Trinity. It points to the fact that God is a relational being. All of us are made for relationship. And it's as if you put a plant 
into, into a room and there was maybe only sunlight coming from the door, what's gonna happen is that plant is actually going to, to try to point itself to, to, to the door. And even if you took it out that environment, you would say that that, uh, that plant is deformed, but the truth is, is that plant came up with a strategy in which it could find connection in life. So our family sets our souls on a trajectory of who we are and who we, who we become and who we do not become. Uh, from our parents and from our primary caregivers, we pick up a doing of relationship in, this, in life that is essentially hardwired into our DNA. For a lot of times when we come into church, when we talk about scripture, um, in the West, we really have a way of exalting um, the mind, exalting belief. You, you've probably heard it said before that the most important thing uh, about a man is what they believe about God. But the truth is, is that faith isn't about just our mind, but it's actually this completely embodied experience. That oftentimes we can believe and we can say all the right things, but the truth is, is that we can deeply have feelings about God that completely fly in the face of our beliefs. You know, so many, I'm sure all of you guys have had these experiences where you might say, you know, I, I have the faith and I believe, but really, the feelings that you have don't line up with that. And I think we um, have done a disservice to people to say your feelings are actually harmful and don't matter and, we, and are opposite to, what, to, to God and anti-God. And what we've done is dehumanize people in the process. So what I want to talk to you about today is a couple different attachment styles. We'll go a little bit into how they affect your adult relationships and then uh, we'll talk about some of the toxic theologies that are necessary to, to kind of prop these up. Um, a lot of it is borrowed from a great guy named uh, Christian Mayfield. I think he comes out with a book later on this year. Uh, but we're just going to delve into these lenses. I promise we will get to Scripture at some point here. Um, but we're going to go through these lenses. And what I want to gift us all is a sense of self-awareness around where we are so that we can uh, find Jesus in the midst of it. So the very first thing is an anxious spirituality, an anxious spirituality. So this is a pattern of worriedly seeking closeness with God, fearing that the moment we relax or backslide into separation, we're convinced it's entirely up to us to maintain our closeness with God. So essentially, when a child is really young, um, they, are, they seek comfort from their primary caregivers. They seek comfort from their mother. Um, and what they'll do is they'll, they'll shout out whenever something is, is wrong, whenever something is happ has happened. And if they realize that their need is going to go unmet, instead of channeling their energy to continue to cry out and to hope that they get the attention that they need, what they'll do is channel all of their energy in not being disconnected to begin with. So a child that has, that, that has an anxious attachment style uh, will typically not go out and play um, like other kids. They might not wander as far away as other kids because it's always a fear of abandonment or always a fear of someone's going to leave me. So what they do is they say, I'm going to stay 
as close to this person as I possibly can. And it's ultimately my responsibility to maintain this relationship. So an anxious spirituality is to describe this way of relating to God because it's driven by an anxiety that fears we will lose our closeness that we desperately need. So we take on all the responsibility for our connection with God and we are constantly double-checking that we're close. In our adult relationships, what this looks like, if you're the person in the relationship who's always like, are we okay? Are we all right? Did I do something to upset you? Are you upset with me? And oftentimes, what you do is you might even do these great acts but they're not actually acts of love. You actually are doing them for yourself because what, you're, what you want to do is you want to feel secure. You want to say, okay, if I do something like this, then, then this, person, this person won't leave me. And it's all based around a deep anxiety about being left. So it's easy to get locked into this pattern with God where we're constantly checking ourselves for cracks to see, oh my gosh, am I, am I, sin, am I sinning? Am I, um, am I doing my quiet time every single day? Because if I don't, maybe I'm gonna fall away from God. Maybe, maybe uh, he's gonna be displeased with me if, if I'm not just doing all of the things and everything within my power to keep connected. It's exhausting, but it's better than the alternative of being left completely alone. Rather than a loving embrace, relationship with God becomes a balancing act that burns us out over time. Now, oftentimes we hear this uh, fleshed out in spirituality by people who are asked questions like, are you right with God today? Are you doing the right thing? How are you in, in, your, in, your, in your sin life? When it comes to worship, a lot of our worship has a undertone of an anxious spirituality. God, I just want to be close to you. It's like you, wouldn't, you likely wouldn't go to your significant other and be like, oh my gosh, I just want to be close to you. Yet we do that with God, even though we have complete closeness with him. We often can um, preoccupy ourselves with, uh, with good tasks in order to try to please God. A.W. Towser um, was known for being someone who, who loved God and being this voice. Um, but when his wife talks about his life and experience, she says he wouldn't buy a car because he didn't want that to distract from God. And I had to walk through the cold Chicago winters uh, in the cold. He would pray so much that he had um, holes in his pants. And once he eventually passed and his wife remarried, they asked him about it. And he said, um, or they asked her, what is life like with a new husband? And she said, well, Towser loved God, but my new husband loves me. That he was so preoccupied possibly with, with, with missing his relationship with God that he actually was not enjoying life. They actually could not wander away from God knowing that he had a secure relationship. Even some of our heroes like uh, the great David Wilkerson, um, who was one of the greatest like revival and reformative preachers of the last, um, I don't know, 50 or probably even 100 years. 
Uh, once he passed, his son said, at his most vulnerable times, my, my father wondered whether he was loved by God. Although doctrinally he knew he was set free in Christ, there was something in him that made him feel like he had to work hard, that nothing he did was enough, that more was required to feel what was missing in his righteousness with God. In fact, studies are starting to show that there are people who are so, uh, that get so attached to exactly what we did this morning, exactly these type of worship experiences, that they get to a point in which they need a worship experience just to feel okay, just to feel um, secure. And I think that God has something better for us. So secondly, there is a shutdown attachment style of spirituality. So it's when we have a pattern of trying to stuff down our, our negative emotions to get close to God. So oftentimes when there's a parent who maybe struggles with their own emotional inward life, um, who struggle with um, maybe their own emotions, they will actually show to a child, uh, maybe on purposely or accidentally, that their emotions are not welcome. So tell a little bit of my story, and my dad's great. Uh, we, have, we have a strong relationship, but uh, he, he allowed me to share this story with you guys. So when I was little, I would always, um, I, uh, my dad would make me like pick the weeds and stuff like that on a, on a Sunday, on a Saturday. And I was just one of the, I was an extremely lazy kid. I did not like yard work whatsoever. It was like the death of me. So I'd go out there and I would cry and I'd cry and I'd cry and I'd like make up all these excuses like, oh, there's like wasp over here and yada, yada, yada. Um, and my dad would come out, come out and say, you know, like, son, you got, you got to like do your work. You got to put your head down, like stop all this complaining, stop all this stuff. If you would have just come and if you would have just like did your work, you could already be inside. Now, it wasn't intentional, but the message that I, that I eventually carried away was that um, my emotions were actually a barrier to connection, that the very thing that they were designed to do um, actually was completely the opposite. And I began to feel more secure if I could just put my emotions away because then I can be connected to my dad. Now it's not a problem that I'm crying or whatever, so I can just like not cry. If I can just stuff it down, get my work done, now I can go and be connected with my dad. So oftentimes, uh, we, really early on, we, we could learn that our emotions actually get in the way. A child that experiences this often will uh, keep themselves preoccupied. It's easier to go and play with my Legos uh, until I regain composure so then I can come back and be with, with, my, my, with my caregiver or with my parent. And what this looks like when it is it's fleshed out in our activity, it's often um, a, a doing versus a being. We, 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 the people who um, have a shutdown attachment style would not enjoy necessarily a small group with depth and vulnerability because what they essentially have taught themselves is that um, it's so much safer if I can have a distance between us, that the way that I'm actually am connected with you is by maintaining a certain amount of distance. So it says, when we grow into adults who keep others at a distance in order to keep them close, we often, uh, we often confuse our friends and partners and ourselves. 
From the outside, it looks like we couldn't care less about closeness, but actually we learned that if we get too close, we'll, we'll be pushed away, so the distance becomes a way of maintaining closeness. Now, this is all propped up, again, by a toxic theology, where God is, uh, you've probably heard something along the lines of like, worry offends God, or um, your doubts are offensive to God. God is disrespected or displeased in the moments when you have doubt. And what that signals is like, oh, so I need to deal with all of these things before I can actually come to God. That God's not interested in being in these things with me, but I actually have to uh, have an appropriate distance away from God and I can handle all these things by myself, much like a child who'd play with Legos. I need to handle these things by myself. I need to handle my issues of doubt. I need to handle all my fears and all these things so I can clean myself enough to deserve some aspect of connection with God. That turns us into this relationship where our relationship with God can never be um, the, the refuge that we, that we want because we can't risk crawling into his lap where we, where we, we can be found uh, offensive. God becomes nothing more than kind of a cosmic gaslighter. So not, not actually concerned about any aspect of your life, but he is now concerned with just what can you do? He's more concerned about his mission. He's more concerned about uh, the activities of the church than about the intimate things and the intimate details about your life. So we end up squashing our feelings down and over time without the ability to go to God with our stress, it becomes increasingly difficult to feel authenticity, authenticity and to feel truly connected. One aspect of this is when you, when you shut down any emotion, whether that's us fear or worry, you actually shut down all of your emotions over time. And what, what, they're, what they're finding is with your brain that if you have a shut down, um, a shut down spirituality or, or a shut down attachment style, is that uh, you you feel that your capacity to feel actually decreases from a brain chemistry level. Lastly, we have a shame-filled attachment style here. So it teaches us that the best way to get close to God is to shame and to blame ourselves for falling below the standard of perfection. We tell ourselves that if we could just be a little better, that we could be close. But then once we realize that we have these limits on how good we can be, then we say, you know what, I will never be good enough so I'm just gonna shame myself. If I can actually, if I can just, uh, at the very, very least, God can see how displeased I am with myself and we can connect on how displeasing I am. That, that we can actually get closeness from both of us just agreeing on the fact that I'm, that I'm nothing, that I'm worthless, that I'm less than. This often happens when there's just uh, in abusive families, but also just in families where there is completely mixed messages. You don't know if when you come home, if you're going to be well-received or not. And what happens is that you, you begin to deep, have a deeply ingrained sense that I am the problem, that, I, that there is something that is dirty about me, that there's something that is wrong about me. It's as if a kid fails a test and before he get, brings it home to his parents, he spends his time 
telling himself how bad and how terrible he is and condemning himself because then he can actually, he, he feels a connection when his, when his parents do the same thing. We can never quite make it there in a few different ways. We end up punishing ourselves for not being someone worthy of love. We, in our adult relationships, we make our desires for connections clear to others and to our shame catches up. Maybe they'll figure out who I am. Maybe they'll figure out that I'm not enough. Maybe they'll figure out that I'm not worth it. When it comes to God, we try to desperately scrub ourselves clean because we want to get close to God, but then it doesn't work. So at least we can hate and pity ourselves. We end up telling God that we completely understand why we don't deserve closeness. Since it's difficult to be, to be a better person, we resort to hating the person we are today. And shame-filled spirituality, feeling bad, actually becomes a mark of closeness. We only find ourselves vacillating between judgment, judgmental nearness, and lonely distance. Shame-filled spirituality puts us in a terrible position where we actually feel better when we're distant from God and feel worse about ourselves when we're close. Churches can often um, spend their time reminding us of how bad we are, how dirty, rotten sinners we are, totally depraved. There's nothing good in us, and God is just merely putting up with us. Brene Brown has a definition of, sh- of shame that says, a painful feeling or experience, of, the, or experience um, of not meeting a standard or being flawed and therefore being unworthy of love and connection. Oftentimes, we would take that very definition and call it the gospel, that I am actually completely um, unworthy, that I'm completely uh, broken and I don't deserve connection. God says, I think that there is a better way. So we have an anxious relationship, a shutdown mentality, and then also a shame-filled spirituality. As much as I'd love to keep this about an internal conversation about just your one-on-one, I'd be doing malpractice if I didn't mention to you as we start to talk about solutions that God's design, Jesus' design for getting healing from our hurts is family. It's one of Jesus' most radical ideas. I think I have it somewhere in here. It's in Matthew 12, 46 and 50. As Jesus was speaking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they want to speak to you. Jesus asked, who is my mother? Who is my brother? Then he pointed to his disciples and said, look, these are my mothers and brothers. Anyone who does the will of the Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What Jesus is doing is reframing the narrative around family. He's saying your family is great likely broken, but what Jesus is pointing to is the creation of a new family in him. That it is true that we are most hurt by family, but it is also true that we are most healed within family. 
that we're most healed within loving and connected relationships. James Pennebaker uh, does a study on trauma and what he found, uh, and essentially he was, he was looking to see uh, when people experience really, really intense situations like the suicide of a spouse or any type of abuse, like severe abuse, what is the thing that contributes some people to get over it and go on to live healthy, normal lives? And then what, um, what, what makes some people just get stuck? And he thought it was gonna be some, something about the severity of the incident or how repeated it was. But then what he came to, fa- to find was that the people who were most often able to walk out and regain healthy relationships were people who were in strong, connected, loving communities. That we cannot heal from relational pain alone, that we can only uh, be healed from relational pain within relationship. So God asked us to trust him with family. He asked to pull us in to family. He asked us to trust each other with family. Every family has a father So we can't get there. We can't become the family that Jesus envisioned without embracing the love of the Father. There is a fourth type of um, attachment, and it is secure attachment. It's viewing God as if he were like a shack in which you always have the key, that there's always this coziness that, that you have access to at any moment, that if you go out into the world, that you could come back and that you will always have the, the secure place of love, this secure center of love that is called home. With the style, we know our parents are tuned into us and accessible when, they need, when we need them. If we, if we say we need help, we know that they'll come running. If we're sad or scared, they'll come and comfort us. The stability of the relationship creates a shelter as we face the overwhelming parts of life, providing a refuge of strength and a present help in trouble. When we feel distance, we know it's not because we've messed up. It's not because we're Um, we're icky or gross or anything like that. It's just a normal part in the family of faith. Rather than striving for closeness, we can rest knowing that God delights in us because God can handle our sadness. He can handle our... I believe that God is inviting us into an upgrade this morning in in our relationship with him. That he's inviting us into an upgrade in the way that we see him. That, that he's allowing us this morning to clarify our image of God. That it's not just about believing the right things, but I think he actually wants to, to, to meet us deeply. The story that this all brings to mind is Luke 15, 17. The story of the faithful father So we see in this story, you guys have probably heard it many, many times, there's a son 
And against custom, what he does is he asks his dad for money. He asks his dad that he can get his inheritance early. And it says that over the year, what happens is he goes out and he squanders his money. That he lives an immoral life. That he spends it on, on, on prostitutes and revelry. And he finds himself kind of at the, at the bottom of it all. That, he, that, that he's feeding pigs, which as a Jewish person who couldn't touch or eat pigs was the most humiliating job that he could ever have. So that he, that, that he was longing for the, for the pods that the pigs were eating. And one day he begins to come to his senses in Luke 15, verse 17. And it says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both you in heaven. And I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. You notice he's already beginning to condemn himself. He's already saying, you know, I'm, I'm completely unworthy of sonship. So he returned home to his father. And when he was coming home, what was supposed to happen was everyone in the village was supposed to publicly shame him. He did this, this terrible, terrible act of leaving his father. And, and they lived it at that time in an honor and shame culture. So everyone was supposed to come out, smash their pots together and shame them and humiliate them. But it says that the father actually came running and he lifts, up, he, he, he lifts up his gown, which also would have been humiliating at that point, and he runs, and he runs towards his son, and he runs towards the shame that was coming for the community. And instead, as he's running with his gown up, he's taking on the shame himself. He said, son, I'm going to meet you. I don't mind feeling the shame. What I want is my son back. So he returned home to his father and while he was still a long way away, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embracing him and kissed him. His son said, Father, I have sinned against both you in heaven and, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servant, not even addressing the fact that he said any of that. And he says, quick, quick, quickly, bring, bring the robe from the house and put it on him. You'll notice what's missing from that statement. You'll notice what, 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 what's missing in the order of operations here. He doesn't say quick, draw him a bath because this is disgusting. He doesn't say quick, 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 
You got to change your clothes right quick because, because you stink and you smell and I can smell the pigs on you. He said, quick, bring me the finest robe. And he puts it on him. That he doesn't have to clean up first. That he doesn't have to handle his, his dirt beforehand. And he puts the robe that was reserved for the honored guest on him. And then he said, get the ring and put it on him. And that ring would have given him the authority, the power of the house. That he restored in that moment the riches of his father's house by giving him a ring that he can use uh, for commerce to buy and to do whatever he needed to do. And he restores the ring. And then he puts the sandals on, it's the sandals of sonship. And he says, look, you are in my house. You are my son. He, he, he slaughters the fattened calf. And then the Bible goes on to say that they celebrate together. You see, you don't have to clean up. Restoring the relationship is not on your shoulders. That it's not your responsibility. That God is much better at being a restorer than you are. That he's much better at loving you than you are at loving him. You can just settle that right now. That what God is doing, he's saying, look, son, look, daughter, just come home, release yourself of all the stress. I'll take on the shame. You don't have to carry the shame anymore. I'll take on the anxiety. You don't have to carry the anxiety anymore. You don't have to shut down that whatever you're feeling, whatever fear you have, whatever emotions you have, whatever mess you're in, that you have a secure home with me. That you are always welcome with me. If you guys don't mind, we're gonna stand And I just believe God wants to reparent us this morning. That he wants to remind us of our heritage, that he wants to put us back and form us back into the family of God this morning. That he wants us to, to, to see him rightly. If anyone here, um, what we're gonna do is we're gonna, we're gonna do this as family. And I believe that this morning, this is a first step on the journey for restoration for many people. And to be walked out over time and, and fleshed out over time, but I believe that, that we're gonna take a, a step as a family together into the wide open spaces of grace this morning. So, so if, if you feel like I need something, I need to have this restoration. I need my image of God fixed. I need my vision of God corrected. What I want you to do is just raise your hand wherever you are, that God, that God will meet you. And if someone is close to you with their hand raised, if you're close, if you could just either reach your hand towards them or if they're right next to you, just put your hand on them. And I believe as we gather around as family, 
that we're gonna be able to begin to see healing, that we're gonna be able to begin to see the, the deep parts of our life begin to be transformed. I'm gonna pray for us all together and then Nate's gonna go ahead and lead us in worship. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that, you're, that you are a secure home for us. We thank you for your presence, God. That you're better at loving us, that you're better at caring for us than we can never imagine. That we have nothing to fear in your presence, that you are a good father. And just bound us to your center of love. In Jesus' name, amen.